Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, I'm Maurice Selby. I'm Ashley Francis. I'm Anastasia. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. And uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another great episode and we have another great guest with us. And that is Dr. Dara Cass. Look at you. So the funny thing is, <laughs> I know, ladies and gentlemen, you can't see that um, her expression <laughs> on her face, but Dr. Cass is the truth. Okay. Um, and you- I, it's because people can't see me that I make those faces. I, totally no. out. <laughs> ugly I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouted you out. <laughs> you just <laughs> exposed her. You exposed her. I know, but she's so awesome. No, that's what I'm looking like. What? <laughs> Most modest people, man. Oh my goodness. No, but yes, we are so thankful to have you and, and thankful um, that you're here to share this information with our listeners. Um, so yeah, we're, we're just going to jump right in. So um, Ashley, yeah, tell us about Dr. Cass. She's the founder of Fem and M. I like that, by the way. I don't know, Kate, did you come up with that name? Because that was very clever. You did? That was like really clever. <laughs> so it's Fem and M, but it's Fem and M, meaning females in emergency medicine. Um, so she's an emergency medicine physician and she advocates for the advancement of people in medicine, uh, mm-hmm. of women in medicine. She's passionate about creating a community where women in emergency medicine can act as champions for one another. She's a graduate of SUNY Downstate, right down the block from me, and Kings County Hospital's residency program. Previously, the director of undergraduate medical education at NYU. She now serves as an associate professor of emergency medicine at Columbia University. Once again, right down the block from my school. (laughs) 
Under her leadership, Feminine strives to achieve gender equality in, med in emergency medicine and provide professional development resources and support for women who have been called to a life in emergency medicine. I know that was very long, ladies and gentlemen, but she is a well-deserved introduction. Okay. Exactly. That's why I said she's the truth. So now, now everybody knows why I'm like, what? Like, why is she making that face? But anyway, yes, welcome, uh, uh, Dara. Thank you for joining us. And yeah, we are going to have a great conversation. Now, now, ladies and gentlemen, since the emergence of COVID-19 last winter, mortality rates amongst men have been consistently higher than that of, of women. Um, however, according to a report in The Lancet, long-term effects of the pandemic are likely to more adversely impact women. And it seems to be that women bear the brunt of the social and economic consequences of this outbreak. According to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, uh, COVID-19, this is quote, COVID-19 could reverse their limited progress made on gender equality and women's rights. And according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, um, they reported that mothers in the UK were 1.5 times more likely to have lost their jobs during the pandemic compared to father. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. And that's why we felt like we really needed to have this conversation. Um, and then hopefully we can also uh, propose some ideas that can really just help um, uh, women during these difficult times. So yeah, that's a lot, man, but we're, we're going to deal with it. So what is going on, um, Dr. Kaz? I mean, you're, you're probably among the top advocates, um, not only in emergency medicine, and when it comes to sort of the labor front uh, in women uh, and, and gender equality. But uh, just in terms of dealing with this crisis, what have you been seeing uh, around you? So a couple of things about this moment. Uh, I've been doing work on gender equity uh, for a long time. The idea of creating a more balanced and fair workplace for women in medicine, emergency medicine. So I started with a little, our little fiefdom of emergency medicine because we are, we are a people we are an innovative people, right? Emergency medicine, unlike a lot of other specialties, is really good at looking for, um, you know, solutions. We're team-based, right? We're generally, especially in New York City, we're we're really we care about each other, and uh, it was it was it was very cool to be able to be uh, bringing gender equity and then other forms of equity. So be becoming very intersectional very early, not just looking at gender, but looking at race, looking at socioeconomic opportunity, talking about the idea that um, becoming a doctor itself is a condition of affluence a lot of times. So we look at, you know, who can and can't become a doctor from the cost mm. to becoming a doctor. So feminine had been discussing all those issues for really the last five years. And then also trying to close the gap on, uh, you know, communities of women realizing that without having her back, right, that's coming out a lot now. We'll talk a little bit about this later. But the idea of the squad or of the team really being together for other women. So if you are the only female in your department or the only black female in your department or the only, you know, young mother in your department, whatever it would be, um, if there was nobody there that could model behavior for you, at least you'd have a larger network to go to. Maybe they weren't going to be right there next to you, but they were going to be in another hospital in the same city or maybe across the country. But mm -hmm. building that network was really important for resilience of women in medicine and creating a culture and a sea change. This coronavirus crisis has really presented us, it's, it's this, um, it's like exposed so many inequities in the country, mm -hmm. right? Obviously right. the idea that we're having, you know, it's the first healthcare crisis in America where we're able to look at the effects on different populations in real time as it affects them and before it affects like, you know, 
clusters of patients in different cities. So yeah. discovering the inequities on patients for patients in New York City, specifically related to zip code, right, or the hospital you went to, That's right. meant that we could sound the alarm for what was going to happen in Houston, right? What was going to happen in Atlanta? So um, realizing that those inequities were in real time being called out and asked and mandated that we study them was really important, right? Knowing that men were getting this virus more than women and being hospitalized at numbers disproportionate to women. But like you're seeing the long hauler symptoms, the symptoms of, you know, persistent fatigue, persistent shortness of breath, persistent chest pain may actually be manifested in women more than men. So there are gender disparities in the symptoms. Then you have um, the crisis of childcare, which has also come out, right? So in the middle of this pandemic, right, all of a sudden, everyone's child care got upended. All schools oh, yes. stopped, right? And, and everyone was at home. So everyone's on Zoom. So what you saw were people's families for the first time. So now what women had to do for so many years, historically, and certainly primary parents, which was to ignore the idea that they had a family to kind of hit to that neutral playing field of everyone being available. Now you're seeing all parents get barged in on by their kids, you know, asking who's going to get my snack. Now you're realizing that, you know, non-primary parents, usually men, are home listening to the kids need things all day long, where a lot of times they were ignoring it or women were picking up the slack at home. And unfortunately, you see that, you know, a race to the bottom affects, you know, unfortunately, it, in a gender dy dynamic, uh, women first. Right. Yeah. So meaning that when you have a pay disparity between two parents and one person has to go flexible for their job in order to create child care opportunities, that's going to be the person who makes less money. Yeah. Well, that's where the persistent pay disparity hits a double whammy because now it's the women and take that even further in healthcare. When you see women, specifically women of color, who are frontline healthcare workers who are not making the same as their white female partners, peers, or their male peers. Mm. Now they have a childcare crisis. So they're having to choose between continuing as a nurse, let's say, or as a home health aide or as a physician, you know, or do they have to stay home and take care of their kids? So now we're seeing again, the double whammy of losing frontline healthcare workers yeah. to the gender and racial inequities of pay you know, it, so there's so many confluent crises happening at the same time right now. And you can see the underpinnings of inequities everywhere. What is remarkable about this moment to me is that we're calling it out in real time while we're still in the middle of it. Right. Yes, Nobody's which is scary. Back. And it's like great that we're addressing or at least bringing, you know, I mean, we can't even say bringing attention to it. It's just out there in the open. Um, but at the same time, I'm with you in that it has to be distressing for for everybody dealing with it. Yeah, and, and and I think that it's also, it's mandating. One of the things, when we talk about solutions, right, one of the things that's really important as we look towards school, we'll talk about this in a little bit, is as schools start to open, but also close, parents are going to need flexible work policies, mm. but not just women, right? So the most important thing employers can do over the next year is create flexible policies for all their employees let everybody work from home for the next year who can, specifically high-income earners, right? Mm, specifically yes. men in power. They need to stay home and they need to work from home in order to create a landscape by which people aren't penalized for having to stay home because school is not childcare and is not going to be consistent for anybody. So we are in the, in the middle of um, 
I mean, essentially, this has literally flipped everything on its head. I mean, to the point where, ladies and gentlemen, actually, we were all laughing just before we even started recording because my daughter is in my lap right now as we speak. <laughs> which, uh, and I'm all not getting her out of your lap. Huh? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She just has to be here um, right now. But that is just um, sort of a uh, just an example about what's actually going on. And, and um, I definitely see... Um, sort of the the, the challenges um, that we just sort of highlighted um, right now. Um, everything from the the workforce uh, issues, and even uh, especially when it comes to the childcare issue, as we right now are um, actually doing everything from home for for pre K um, in light of social distancing and and uh, what's happening with this outbreak. So I feel like uh, on a cultural, like let's say you know when it comes to these challenges and how it's impacting everyone. I think the vast majority of us definitely see that things need to change. Um, and we do need to, for instance, really, um, you know, see those changes come down from the employers, um, you know, even starting from the corporate entities on down to even small businesses, um, finding ways to um, make this possible where people can work from home um, and things like paid leave for families um, to take care of these issues in the household. Um, but how is that going to sort of play out? If you have any ideas on this, on, on just the national stage, um, I guess even in terms of the local stage, in terms of making this happen, um, because I feel like just from sort of the financial pressures on the companies themselves, I don't know if, if that is the, the sort of natural direction of things. Um, so this is, there is so, there's so much wrong with how we employ people in America right now, how we provide healthcare for people in America, how we, and this pandemic has really been remarkable in showing us how those, um, how, how cutting corners and those solutions has put us all at risk, yeah. right? So the best way I can describe it is we're looking for a teacher for our pod, for our kids, right? They're going to school hybrid, but we're looking to have somebody home for that. In that employment agreement is paid sick leave, mm. paid days off, um, and, you know, all of that because it's a pandemic. And you don't want somebody um, not, like, you know, coming to work sick in the pandemic because they're not going to get paid, Right. The same thing, this, the, the problem we're finding is obviously health insurance, right? So a lot of people looking, still look to their employer to provide them health insurance. Well, that's horrible. I mean, there, there's nothing, it's not to say that we need to have one single uniform health, you know, national health program, but we do need to to separate, you know, your employer-based health, your employment from your health insurance, because that creates a landscape by which people stay in abusive jobs, inequitable jobs. You know, this is a, a huge perpetuator of the workplace violence for women is that they mm. stay in jobs that give them health insurance because they need the health insurance and they stay in an abusive environment for way too long. They don't, you know, they don't talk about, um, workplace problems because they need that health insurance. So I think that what we're realizing now is we have to separate employer-based health, insur health insurance from employment. We have to give sick time and paid leave to families and people in order to keep the employment safe. Because the truth is, if people keep coming to work sick and you have to shut down your entire workplace because you mm -hmm. have another exposure from the coronavirus, that is really expensive. And so we're seeing the consequences of cutting corners are getting more and more expensive. And That's when you look fact, at cities yeah. like New York versus Houston, 
right? When you look at the way we open back up in New York in a very kind of sequential and scientific-based pattern, our economy is moving forward slowly, but consistently. So our businesses are not having to shut her back down after opening, ordering food, ordering drinks, you know, all the things businesses do to open and then all that going to waste. Whereas in other cities, part of the resistance to following public health measures has been that this, these businesses were allowed to open. So they reinvested in opening and closing them is really expensive and might be the thing that makes them bankrupt. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to, um, to change the landscape of how we take care of Americans, how we provide healthcare, how we provide employment, how we take care of each other. Um, and I think that family policies, uh, you know, paternity leave, one of the things I've been advocating for for years is mandated paid paternity leave and not from the employer, but from the employee. Meaning that um, there's a lot of men that don't take paternity leave, even mm. when it's offered to them because they think it's some sort of a machismo or aspirational thing to come back to work right quick after they have a baby. And all that does is undermine other men that want to stay home and women that have to stay home. So it becomes this cultural norm where you're sort of doomed. And it, I mean, this happened to me, right? This was uh, sort of a firsthand experience. In, and uh, part of it was that I was a, a resident physician at the time. So I did not want to prolong my um, uh, time in residency. But I remember having this discussion um, with my program directors and opting, I think, like you said, it was partially like a cultural uh, sort of thing or, or an attitude going into this. So I was like, nah, you know, I'd prefer to just work through it when they were trying to be flexible with me and say, hey, we can move things around to make sure that you get this time, you know, with your family. Um, in retrospect, I'm like, man, what was I thinking? <laughs> but uh, it's that, the that's the culture. Being a warrior, yeah. Right. It's the idea that I don't need leave. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bust through this. I'm going to take, and you're, and you know, and that's actually one of the things I think it's, if there's a silver lining to this pandemic, and I think there are a few, um, one of the most important ones to me is that we are all recentering our purpose, right? We are realizing that consumption and movement and forward, you know, all this stuff that we've been doing, moving, 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 we are home. And, you know, home isn't safe for everybody, but we're realizing home is not safe for everybody. We are realizing that these inequities are being highlighted. We are looking at each other in a way that, for me, at least where I live, is, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot of kind of getting down to the basics right now. We're realizing how hard it is to be parents, Mm -hmm. right? How much it takes to educate a child. We're valuing teachers again. You know, we're valuing healthcare workers, sanitation workers, grocery store workers, the people that have kept us moving for so long that have been otherwise ignored. We are seeing them and their sacrifice and what they've brought to the table. And to me, I'm not ready to, I'm not, I hope that I don't forget that for a very long time. So, so I have to ask this question in light of uh, sort of everything that we've discussed so far, how have you as a professional woman been sort of making out in the with the existence of these inequities and, you know, imbalances in our society and especially in the workforce? So I guess my first head-on experience with uh, inequality was when I was hired by CNN. I don't know if I'm allowed to say too much about it, but um, it just ended up happening that I, my classmate and I got hired at around the same time. We had very similar projects, very similar job descriptions, but our pay were different. So that's when I realized, oh, I'm 
doing almost the same amount of work, even more at times. Mm-hmm. And yet I am not being paid as much as he is. And I wouldn't have found out unless we actually had a discussion about it, which is something that I realized isn't common either. Like people don't talk about how much they get paid. And so people don't really know like if a woman or a person of color is getting paid, how much less they're getting paid compared to like their white male counterparts that are doing the same job. So that was something that um, at the age of 19, I learned. Um, And then, you know, you just, you have to fight for um, what you think is fair for you. And you have to go about it in a very uh, not direct manner because you cannot be too forward because then they'll view it as a bad thing because you are a woman and, you know, being in corporate in the corporate world before I came back to CCNY to do chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, It's a whole different ball game when you're, when you're a man and when you're a woman. Um, So you just have to learn what, uh, how to work with what you got and try to fight for it to make it better for you and whoever comes after you. Ideally that's the goal. Like you want to try to make it better for um, the next person and more fair in hopes. <laughs> I was going to say, for me, it's about, uh, it's really about motivation from my family because I grew up in a household with eight women. I'm still in this house right here with eight women with an additional two men that just came in for the past five years. And they really pushed me to do womanly things. Do you see what I'm saying? So now that I've been back from college, um, I have to cater to my grandfather and to my uncle, as well as help out my little cousin with her work and help my grandmother cook. And it's a lot more responsibilities than I had when I was dorming in Harlem. Mm. And it's just something that's expected of you. It's not verbally said, but you know it's expected of you. And that pushes you to do it. Do you see what I'm trying to say? It's like unspoken words. And that right. motivates me to do what I have to do at this point because I don't like cooking. I don't <laughs> like washing other people's dishes. I learned a lot of independence in college. And now it's wow. it's like transitioning back to living with my family because before I was living by myself. And it's this very interesting process. I still haven't really gotten over it. <laughs> and so I guess that's a that's sort of just a um I mean what's happened with a lot of women throughout the country, correct, Dr. Cass? Um, in yeah, different I mean, that, degrees, I guess. Well, I think that yeah, definitely. I think that, first of all, you know, everyone going home again means that people were like cooking and cleaning all the time, right? Which is mm-hmm. fun. Everybody was, right? I think that in our family, one of the solutions we came up with, which is new for us, was that we started getting the home food delivery services, like the ones you okay. cook. And yeah. my 12 year old daughter started cooking them which is awesome because she That's was bored up. and I was hungry. And yeah. so this worked out really well. <laughs> uh, and it allowed us to kind of expand those um, roles in a way mm-hmm. because she, you know, normally had school and this and that. And so putting it on a 12 year old to cook dinner every night isn't always easy, but when she's doing nothing else all day, except for maybe reading a couple of books or watching television, it was awesome. Um, I think that the historic inequities women faced in the workplace, I think, um, require them, like I said before, to kind of put their other roles away. And I think what Anastasia was talking about before about not knowing about what other people are making or this silence around um, pay equity, like these are the things that we've been trying to kind of open up for years. Those have existed Mm -hmm. way before this. But again, this pandemic 
um, you know, opened a lot of people's eyes to a lot of things. And I think back to what you were saying is I think non-primary parents and men specifically have really, their eyes have been opened up to the work of parenting that they were otherwise having a free path on, even when they were um, really involved parents. So I think that um, we've had, I have a lot of friends, like a lot of guy friends who have this epiphany where they like, are like, you know, they, they offer their services a lot. And so they realized that the person they were offering to was still managing all the workload. Right. So they were like, you know, they were taking care of the kid, you know, after work a couple of days a week, but they, the, the mom was usually the one making all the birth, the, you know, birthday parties and the doctor's appointments and making sure the schools were taken care of. And, you know, there's all this emotional housework that happens and emotional labor to somebody that is the primary parent and just kind of popping in and offering support every so often is a super convenient thing to do. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's me. I, like I know, that. and I think that, and 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 you're a good guy. I think that you know a lot of it's been this kind of um, this expectation we have on ourselves as you know women and who expect to be primary parents. Some of it's rooted in the inequities of the pay that we're going to have versus our partners. Um, some of it's rooted in the stuff we like to do, right? So I don't like to cook and clean, but I do enjoy hanging out with my kids for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, and I think I have a different level of patience than my husband sometimes when it comes to their chaos mm. and crazy. Um, and so I might be better suited to take care of certain things. The other thing I will say for us is we had an au pair um, this whole time, Got it. which is awesome because <laughs> we did a lot of people, um, you know, didn't have a childcare provider outside of their family because they weren't living with that person. And yes. you had to, you know, everyone had to be home and safe. That was everyone, at least everyone I knew recognized that safety came first. So if somebody was a domestic worker of any capacity, whether they were a nanny or a a housekeeper or anything, they were getting paid the entire time to be home with their family and stay safe. I don't know anybody that didn't treat others like family and expect them to be protected and safe. For us, our childcare provider lives in our house. So she was part of our family the whole time. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to work the whole time while not having to do the homeschool thing, which is such a struggle for so many parents. Um, And that's been really hard because you can't be expected to work and be a teacher and be a cook and be a cleaning person and be a this and be a that all in the same space while you're managing the anxiety of a pandemic. Yes. You described my mom. (laughs) Well, (laughs) partially. no, I mean, that's that's very true. And I think like a ways that people get around it is like if they're not rich enough to hire domestic work is that they have older generations come in and help them and rely on them a lot. Um, and this pandemic kind of also changed the dynamics of that as well, because everyone is home. And now you also have to be extra cautious because you have someone that may be an elder inside your house. So you also need to take care of that. And, and- there, there's a lot of changes. Right. And, um, and that's actually right. So multi-generational families were the hardest hit. The hardest hit. Yeah. Right. So where, and, and most importantly, and this is something we're talking about, we can kind of pivot a little bit to the school thing is one of the things we're not talking about is when our kids go back to school, do we have to stop seeing our parents? Mm. Right. Because now our kids are going to have, and in New York city, that's probably not true because our um, viral levels are so low that I think we're still going to be pretty okay and safe. And our kids are going to be masked up. And the ones that are going to go to school are going to do it. in I think a pretty safe environment, but in other cities, in other States where they have a higher viral load and their positive test rates are still over 10%. There is no way that those kids who are going to school should be seeing their grandparents while they're in those school environments. Um, 
and that's really unfair to grandparents. You know, they like, I mean, you ask my mom and she's like, I live for my grandkids. If I can't see them, do I really care to live for much longer? You know, mm. it's a problem. And this is even, um, we even passed the sort of economic ramifications, um, which I think we really uh, touched upon. Even in how women receive care, uh, we've seen uh, this impacted. Um, everything from uh, missing prenatal care appointments um, and also postpartum care due to fears of cont- contracting COVID-19. Uh, some healthcare providers canceled or postponed uh, some visits to homes um, in caring for uh, patients and even uh, receiving care. Others have switched to telemedicine visits, which, I mean, it's great that we have the technology we have to be able to carry out, you know, telemedicine consultations. But um, I really don't think that that really substitutes or replaces um, the value of being right upfront and personal uh, with your healthcare provider. Um, so we just see that, that, you know, there's so many ways in which this is um, impacted everyone, but especially women. And, and also, finally, the stress and isolation uh, from social distancing and being quarantined. And I know one thing that was really valuable uh, uh, for my wife, and I'm uh, fortunately speaking on her behalf, but we've definitely talked about this, um, is just the support that she got from other moms in the community, right, um, uh, about everything from professional, uh, their professional lives to even just caring for um, the kids and dealing with us husbands, right? Like there's that support system is, is taken away. And as you know, I, I really, like I said, love this technology, but a zoom call versus being with your, um, besties right in person and having a glass of wine, I think it's, it's very different. I don't know if you guys can say it's uh, <laughs> the same or not, but it's just a different dynamic. And I've seen the fallout. So I think for me, um, I've been really uh, progressive in how we've socialized in this pandemic. So we were super strict in the very beginning. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I was a healthcare worker. My, I actually have a transplant child. So I have a child that has immune, is immune compromised. And that was you know something we need to consider. But then as soon as New York City got safe enough, we started, and Mother's Day was really the first time we started seeing other people in a really kind of appropriate masked up socially distanced way and really i mean using things like stoop sitting right i grew up in brooklyn okay so oh, okay, like okay. i have been stoop sitting my entire life and i um i i i don't know i mean so to me sitting on my stoop and watching people go by is like totally normal and completely wonderful right yes so what is the difference if i'm sitting on my stoop and a neighbor is on the other side of the you know what our fence you know talking to me we're 6 feet apart you know, I have a glass of wine, they have a glass of wine. Like that is a completely safe and normal thing to do. Yes. And so I moved very quickly to in-person hanging out, but in a way that was modified for this moment. That makes and sense. I think that one of the things I wanted people to feel good about was when you do that, you know, do it smart, do it safely, do it in the right environment, take responsibility for your actions, but be excited that you're moving forward. I think a lot of people, and this goes back to anti-maskers or people in you know cities that are run by maybe leadership that aren't doing their leadership based on science and data, are so angry about the position they've been put in, right? They resent the other. They resent this virus. They fall into tropes on racism and you know xenophobia and all these things that have happened to them because it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the things that I think we've done in New York is we've taken, we've flipped that narrative, right? We've taken control of the situation we're in and we've tried to, I think, lean into the opportunities being presented in front of us and take that. Look at the cities, like the streets of New York City right now for food, right? Oh, yes. They're not, they're not keeping our, our restaurant business is not booming, but we are moving forward, right? Um, to me, that's a silver lining. So I guess the point to you is I think a lot of people need to be encouraged to find those human connections that matter. Things like going away for a weekend with another family, living, moving back in with their parents. I mean, not mm-hmm. for nothing, actually, but I think that's kind of awesome for the short period of time, obviously. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> like at some point, it's like if you look back at this moment in five years and you're like, you're going to miss the fact that you got to live with your parents again for some period of time in what is functionally a sorority house with pink walls, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I have pink walls, by the way, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome. And I think that, again, these are the things that we've been taking for granted that are not valuing in our lives. And I just think that this is something we can learn from in this moment. No, it's it's true. A lot of people get cabin fever. It's a real thing. Um, you start getting very um, anxious and angsty being home and you start getting frustrated easier. And it does feel... In the beginning, when the when we first got really uh, when we first got hit badly in around March, and everyone suddenly had to stay inside and quarantine, um, I think that that was the hardest part because the the sudden change, the complete one eighty from what we're used to to hopping on the bus and going to the city, um, or just using the MTA to get to wherever we needed to go, and having the freedom to go get brunch with our friends whenever we wanted. Um, just to suddenly have everything turned upside down and just, you are right. There are new opportunities. Netflix party is a thing now. I don't, I can watch uh, movies with my friends without having to coordinate um, us starting the movie at the same time. (laughs) And one person just starts it and we all watch it. Um, And virtual happy hours, trivia that is online. That's also something that's um, becoming more innovative. And it's, it's great because it allows people that, normally couldn't come out like if people were already immunocompromised or they already had other conditions that they had a, a position in which they had to stay inside most of the time it allows them the opportunity to have a social life now in the sense that they can be part of things that normally they maybe could have not been part of for example like um my friends that don't drink would not really go to trivia because it'd be at a bar so but now because it's virtual they have the opportunity to partake in that so it does, although we are very quickly and we're doing quite well in terms of adjusting to the situation right now, it, it has come up, it has come with a few several linings. Also, the fact that New York City is allowing for um, this outdoor seating next year, mm-hmm. that's also a good thing that came out of it, in my opinion, because I'm European, so outdoor seating is definitely something that we enjoy. <laughs> it's 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 been amazing to watch. I mean, and then... Again, like I don't, we don't need to detract from the, the downsides of this, but it has been, there are, have been upsides in New York for us. I think it's not true for the rest of the country. I think that, uh, and, and look, New York hasn't been perfect. Uh, and we're going to see a, a lot of reflection of what we, we've learned and what we need to do better. Um, and I think that, you know, we're looking into a presidential election and then a mayoral election in New York City. And I think that that's going to give us mm-hmm. a lot of lessons and a lot of opportunities to reflect on the things that went wrong in New York City. But I, uh, I look forward to solving those problems or at least work- working towards solutions uh, in the near term.
do you think just from uh, your experiences um, prior to COVID, right? Juggling family life, being um, uh, an academic uh, emergency physician, um, and also the founder um, of your your organization, Feminem, um, and just looking at other professional women in society uh, prior to the onset of COVID and now currently in the midst of this crisis, um, do you think maybe that you guys were better equipped in dealing with all of this, right? Being able to work from home, sort of managing the family, because I, I'm not going to front. I'm sitting, I'm struggling, right? Like absolutely struggling to sort of make all of this work um, at the same time. And uh, it's something that, I mean, even just looking at how Christine, uh, my wife sort of deals with it. And she's like, huh, now you see like and I what think we that, were dealing okay, with the entire this is time. What I'm gonna, yeah, this is what I'm going to say to you. Privilege exists everywhere. Mm. And I think that it has been a, it is remarkable to watch men who, again, have been fancying themselves allies for a very long time, have to walk the walk. And yes, I definitely think that women and certainly primary parents um, were better suited to deal with this moment. Uh, and and because we were already doing it all and now we're just all doing it all at home, right? Um, and I think that that has been hard for us because we're not looking to anyone to solve our problems. We're just looking for them to get lesser and lesser as we move forward, right? So it's like the problem with the school crisis as we kind of move into that conversation is that it means that nothing is going to get better anytime soon. Um, and if you don't have dependable childcare, then the careers of women suffer. Got it. And I think that that's a really, really important problem. Um, because if we don't create a landscape by either the workplace or the school is forgiving, then women get crushed in the middle. Got it. Now let's let's go right into that. Thank you for the, that segue. Wonderful. Because well, I got invited onto radio show. <laughs> <laughs> um, because even just looking at that, right, the work, right, and we're only uh, this, in the second week, the second full week um, of our semester um, in just pre-K, and looking at the challenges um, that, and Christina's doing. You know, hats off to Christine. Um, she is just doing a phenomenal job in helping Imani um, in this transition. That's our daughter, ladies and gentlemen. I think you guys know her. She's been on the show before. Um, but in, in, in taking care of Imani while we're doing this remote learning, this is work, right? Um, in taking care of sick family members that are um, either knocked out from COVID-19 or as we know with this disease, um, there are definitely, um, as Dr. Cass mentioned, individuals that have long-term effects and disability uh, related to this disease. Um, and with that said, taking care of these people at home, um, especially when you can't find other healthcare providers to come into the home for fear of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. It's COVID season. Um, where are we in terms of this unpaid work? Are there opportunities to get support for these individuals um, at home caring for family members. And actually, this is a, a kind of a topic even before uh, we, we were going to have this on uh, Health in Harlem, uh, because I have a, a, a colleague whose son um, has uh, permanent brain damage and uh, was actually looking at passing legislation like this. She's a, an RN, a nurse that was trained in providing care, but couldn't get any compensation for providing the very same care 
that she would have, have paid to have uh, someone else come in and render that care. And there's no support like that or no services or programs like that. So did you envision something like that potentially um, happening? I Maybe. I think that there's a <laughs> lot of opportunity to reframe our expectations of each other. Um, our reframe our expectations of our communities. I think that the idea that childcare and teaching are uncompensated if they're done by parents, but they're not, but they're compensated when they're done by other people mm-hmm. um, is, is, is interesting. Like, could you get childcare tax credits for being that, your own childcare like provided? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if there isn't an option, I think the other part of it is, is that, you know, what that requires, and I think this is back to the original conversation, is an investment from federal le- level to state level to individuals to say, we are investing in you in this period of time so that we can get out of this together. And I think yeah. that it's been, it's it's borderline criminal how uh, poorly the federal government has invested at state levels and has punished states that are not politically aligned with the federal leadership um, in order to somehow get an agenda passed. Uh, and we're seeing that right now with the rapid testing, it's, you know, we don't know where the federal government's going to send the 150 million rapid tests that they're procuring from Abbott. And something tells me that they're going to go to places that are in favor with the president. And that's very concerning. Um, if there's no expectation that equitable, equitable distribution of resources to where it's needed is, is available, and the same thing is true for legislation, then people are just going to suffer continuously. Got it. So, and and where are you, as far as your feelings on, um, and you kind of voiced some of it at the earlier, at an earlier point in the, in the program, um, just in terms of getting kids back into um, schools, and especially um, with the the sort of immune compromise um, of your, you said it was your son. I have uh, one, one of my, one of my three kids has a little, and wow. ironically, he's the first one going to in-person school, probably. Got it. So, uh, so this is the story. So I've been talking a lot about schooling uh, around mm-hmm. the country. And I actually, I was talking about camp before that. Um, the, it, it's actually, so the virus is not the reason in New York City why kids are not going to go to school. Uh, you need to have uh, the community spread at a point of reasonable control before you can open any sort of mass gathering. And school is the most mass of all the gatherings, right? Yes. So you really should have a positive test rate less than 3%, but 5% mm-hmm. is kind of the high level number um, to prove that you have enough testing capacity to find viruses when you have it out there. So that's a that's a normal number everyone should know about, Okay. The problem in New York City is our schools have been so underfunded for so long, the ventilation systems are terrible and they've been overcrowded. And so that is only getting highlighted back to the inequities and talk about like schools that are underfunded in Title I schools for generations um, mm-hmm. that have been, you know, you know, the environmental injustice that happens in communities that are um, that are hardest hit for lots of reasons, right? Like, so it's, it, this is where it all compounds. So if you have a school that has poor ventilation and it's overcrowded and you're expecting these children to go back to school, even if the virus is low, if there's anything out there, it's going to make it unsafe for both the children and the teachers. Hmm. And you're seeing this backlash from teachers and administrators on being asked to go to work in an unsafe environment um, when they've been working in a marginally safe environment for probably the last 20, 30, 40 years. And now it's like, here's a straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is kids need to be in school for themselves and for their parents. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm much more in- interested in investing in schools opening than I am in businesses opening again. Like meaning like, you know, lawyers and other business people should stay home and work from home. They're doing just fine. And we need to take all those tests and all those resources and get kids back to school. 
we need to take all their buildings and, and use them for educational resources. So it means that things like theaters could maybe be used for educational resources. But that requires leadership, definitive, creative leadership that can make decisions and execute them. And we just don't have that in much, most major cities. The bureaucracy is so overwhelming that it's yeah. the re- the bureaucracy is the reason our kids are going to have a difficult time getting educated this year, not the virus. Got it. Wow. And that's, that's yeah, it's just uh, sad, unfortunately, that we're, what, uh, six months into this and we still can't sort of get over those hurdles in terms of the uh, partisanship and, and uh, yeah, the politics just shine, shining through um, on these issues. So uh, as far as giving individuals the tools and strategies they need to get through this time, uh, what have you sort of been recommending um, on uh, Feminem and even in, in sort of your other uh, speaking engagements in that, that speaking circuit? Um, what have you sort of presented as strategies that people can employ, um, especially women, of course, to get through um, this crisis? So I think first and foremost, we all need to recognize the limits of our own humanity and sanity in this moment. It is a really scary and uncertain time. Uh, mm-hmm. Find the things that 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 make you feel safe or that give you that, that fill your tank for whatever that is and really kind of lean into them and do them. Uh, surround yourself with people as best as you can, which means like Ashley living sometimes in a multi-generational house for this period of time. I mean, because, because living alone right now is a bad idea, right? There's nothing that says you have to be alone right now. It just says that you have to be safe. So I've been telling people, to, to find people and, and move in with them. I mean, that's really what a lot of people have done over the last six months. Um, when it comes to work, you need to find a system of support that works for you. So we have never stopped working. So emergency medicine doctors, which we both are, um, have uh, had an interesting run of this because we have had professional, I mean, it's been chaotic in our jobs, but we certainly have been working the whole time. There are 30 million Americans that have lost their purpose by mm. being unemployed in this moment. And I think that finding purpose is really important. Um, I know a lot of people that have done incredible volunteer work over this moment because they've lost their primary employment. And at least if they were getting unemployment checks or they were able to be supported, they could find, they could help with the solutions. Um, and so I would say that most people, you need to be doing something. If you're doing nothing right now, meaning like you're watching Netflix and hanging on your couch and, you know, really getting afraid of this, you are, it's going to continue to eat away at you because the toxic environment that we're in right now is really dangerous. Um, and so just find something you believe in, find something that you can make a difference on and just do it for the next three to six months while we figure out what it looks like to move forward. Um, Mm -hmm. because we're not going to get a vaccine in the next few months. We're not going to get really any answers. There's no magic medication coming. Uh, Even if we had a vaccine, it's going to take years before it's adopted enough to make a difference. What? I was just saying, yes, like I was agreeing. No, it's going to take years for it to get in enough arms to make a difference on herd immunity. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be traveling the same way we used to. And so it's, it's better to figure out your new normal. And it doesn't mm. mean giving over to this virus. It means, you know, talking to your partner and figuring out a more equitable, equitable way to share childcare. Like, I mean, that's been a lot of the conversations in our house has been everyone has to chip in. Yeah. And it's and not it, a favor anymore. Got it. And uh, as far as, you know, looking at um, 
we do have those situations, unfortunately, where, and uh, real quick, I just got to step back, right? Always, we always want to be positive, ladies and gentlemen, on this program. And um, I definitely appreciated the the time being closer to family, um, which we, we talked about earlier in the program, but also um, just looking at some of the challenges with families where being sort of enclosed um, and, and uh, sort of shuttered in with your family can actually pose a risk to some individuals. And we have seen sort of spikes in domestic violence, um, even uh, violence that is sort of um, uh, targeted towards children um, as well. So this is sort of another issue. And one thing I just want to get out there in that regard is that um, your local emergency department is always open and always staffed and ready to help you um, sort of deal with these uh, issues. Um, but also, uh, Dr. Cass, just have you seen sort of um, uh, increased reports of this dynamic as well as just as far as like sort of uh, violence within the household um, during this this crisis? Absolutely. There are documented, there's a lot of documented evidence to say that mm -hmm. domestic violence is, is increasing. Look, people are drinking more at home. Um, if you have access to a firearm at home, uh, this is critically, you know, it, it's, it's very dangerous, sexual assault, sexual violence at home. Uh, and so that is all very real. Um, one of the things that's been really important to, to discuss is that this is not a binary choice. It's not let the virus run rampant or save people in unsafe situations. It's remit, remind people that there are resources for them. There will always be safe environments. Ask yes. people to stay home um, in an unsafe. Nobody is asking anyone to stay home in an unsafe exactly. environment. And we need to make sure that people understand that um, safety comes first. And if that means that your life is at risk, get out of your house. Uh, and we will find you somewhere to be, and and we need to be better at that. I mean, you know, same thing is true for like you know drug addiction and drug use. Like we've done a terrible job historically at recognizing that substance abuse and mental health are disorders that need treatment, not punishment, and mm -hmm. that we need to provide resources for those as well. Again, I'm really hoping that on the other side of this pandemic, we are reframe our support of humans and the need to give them resources to survive their illnesses and not punish them for that in a way that does not do anything for the larger issue. Um, yes. So we've seen it and I think that, but I do want to make sure that uh, it's a co-opted narrative a lot that, and we see a lot of this from um, people interested in sacrificing human lives for economic, which is what this is. This idea that this pandemic, this don't let the cure be worse than the disease. Like, the idea of, of having everyone stay home was a, it was a, it's a broad-based solution when you had to get an uncontrolled spread of this virus under, you know, happening. The only reason we would need a national stay-at-home policy, again, has to do with the cities that have not been able to manage their viral load the same way that New York has. And unlike the first round, where it was because the cities that didn't have a lot of spread just didn't have a lot of virus, New York has had the virus. We just have done a better job keeping it at bay. Yeah. So I think that we need to be very deliberate about how we message the risks at home to people and the resources for them, while not undermining the idea that staying at home when the virus is spreading uncontrollably is the safest thing for a community that needs to get a grip on its ability to, to decrease transmission. Got it. That was your that was your family in the background, the kids? I heard. My, I don't It's not mine, but I oh, have plenty of okay, okay. that. Uh, I'm sure that they've, they're, they're out there hustling for something. That's probably my cousin. Yeah. There are a lot of chips being eaten right now with nobody paying attention to what's happening in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just, we're almost done, almost there. Just uh, a couple more things. So how can we, 
right? Because one thing that I fear, and we kind of talked about that at the beginning, was just sort of how we can ensure that we change um, the culture, right? How we can also, at the larger level, um, have legislation enacted to um, protect women, to work on gender equity, to um, talk about those things as far as getting more support for households, um, especially as we have to maintain right social social distancing um, and working from home. Um, how can we sort of advocate um, not only for ourselves but also for one another in our communities to make sure that that we make progress um, in those domains? So I think that um, large scale solutions are, are going to be lost on us for the next few months uh, mm-hmm. because we're frozen. Uh, but which means that we have to make gains in our communities and amongst our peers and workplaces. And that means that we have to be caring and considerate to each other. Uh, I think when the pandemic was raging in the city and people needed to stay home because of exposure or illness, we were we were pretty good at taking care of each other. The yeah. same thing needs to be true right now for this uh, child care crisis and kind of the equity crisis we have going on as far as the way homes are. Um, and we just need to, I'm like, a lot of times people just need to verbalize what they need and say, listen, you know, I have a four-year-old. I have no child care. This is the clinical schedule I need in the ER in order to survive for the next mm. three months. And then not resent people for not giving what you need when you didn't ask for it. But then also working in an environment where we can, we can help each other out. Um, I think that that is, as an employer, I would say that making sure you're, you understand your employee's situation and being able to support them as best you can under the confines of the circumstances we're in. Um, everyone is scared. It is, we are in the middle of a, you know, kind of a racial justice reckoning, an economic downturn and a pandemic at the exact same time while we're dealing with a climate crisis that has been completely under addressed and we're going into hurricane season. So, oh gosh, (laughs) you just laid it on us. (laughs) You know, this is like, this is it, right? So um, it is going to be hard to look to uh, leaders for solutions right now uh, because there are so, and so people are paralyzed by the overwhelming amount of, of injustice that is being born on almost every American and many more versus others, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And so I think that what we have to right now do is go back to the grassroots communities and just take care of our neighbors uh, and be champions for each other. And, you know, that is right now the best advice I can give because, um it is, we are, we have been left to, to solve our own issues right now. Mm. Got it. And um, uh, Anastasia, um, Ashley, any uh, last questions for Dr. Cass? Um, you mentioned something about how your son that is immunocompromised is one going first. How was that situation? Like how, how was that conversation with the rest of your family members and how did that come about? Cause well, it, he, I was he, surprised. I was surprised well, no, when he, I heard that. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he's the one who needs the most education. Now uh, the reason is that he, um, they go, my kids go to different schools. So two of my three kids go to a private school. That's not opening until October 12th. So they're going remote Got for it. the first month. Um, my, my youngest goes to a New York city public school. And so their school is supposed to open hybrid. Uh, or open with the opportunity for hybrid or full remote. And we chose hybrid uh, because of all the reasons I said, because if the school mm-hmm. is open, he can wear a mask. And remembering that mask wearing is the single most important thing anybody can do to open in schools and keep them safe. The other thing we need is to figure out how to test uh, children who are exposed and the, and the, and the workers, uh, you know, the teachers and the other staff of the school. Um, but he's going, I, I 
want my children to be um, in school as best as they can. And a city that has a positive test rate of under 1% for weeks on end, our children deserve to go to school. And we, yes. d- we need to figure out how to get them there. That is our responsibility as grownups. So that's what I'm going to keep fighting for. That's what's up. Uh, and uh, yeah, in contrast to where I am now, I'm not even going to mention uh, the city. But uh, anyway, <laughs> what? somewhere in, somewhere in Georgia. So that just tells you where you're we're not at. even yeah. in New York right now. I forgot. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, oh boy. Um, yeah, one, even, went from what? <laughs> oh no, no. I was going to say I went from one hot spot to the other, but <laughs> yeah, you a lot of right. <laughs> yeah. You you moved as soon as New York was starting was to become okay. <laughs> yeah, I had I had multiple residents who graduated and moved to like Phoenix oh. and Atlanta. Florida and it was like it's unfair right yeah you just survive the worst of it and then here you are yeah. did you get the virus I, I, I got sick in New York but very mild symptoms um but definitely like loss of you know sense of smell and stuff but nothing nothing severe Were you tested uh, I had antibodies I just oh, okay. did the antibody test but I knew once I lost my sense of smell I knew I was I had it yeah um, it's like it it was <laughs> I mean I yeah at least it gets to be a part of the future Hopefully, True story. Yeah, <laughs> until it's over, until the antibodies are gone, and then we're back to basics again. I don't know. Yep. So, so Dr. Cass, I'm sorry, I have one more question. Um, so I took the, I went to CityMD, I took the test, both the antibody and the swab. It, it wasn't the best feeling in the world. Um, I commend everyone that's taking it more than once. Um, and I, my question is, uh, I had a 14 day delay for getting my results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that because every single it seems as though every single lab is overwhelmed and um, my sister that just flew back because she was studying abroad in Europe, she just flew back because the semester started um, here in New York City again. She took a rapid test, but she had to pay out of pocket for that. And it it, it, was, it, it was like about a hundred something dollars, but she got it within a day. But that was really hard to find. I had to search really far and wide to find that specific clinic that offers that test. Given how most people are having this 14-day delay in terms of results, how do you think that might play out um, throughout the rest of the year, especially now with schools opening and everything else? Because there's more than just two students and teachers. There's custodians, administration people, and everyone, mm. you know, they either live alone, live with partners, other children, or with multi-generational families like Ashley and I do. And so, like, with all that, having that delay, how do you think that might impact one, the statistics that we're getting out of it in terms of the data, and two, how do you think that might lead us in terms of the choices we're making in the future? Okay, so this is actually super important. So there are two kinds of tests that you can take in real time. There's the antigen test, which is a 15-minute test. It's the announcement today the president's going to make tonight that he has 150 million tests that he's doing. There are now three companies that make these antigen tests that you can get real-time data. Um, That's about half the tests that are being done in America right now, and it's what a lot of people are paying um, out-of-pocket for. is this antigen test? It's it's got a it's less sensitive and specific, so it's less good at the answer. But it is a better screening test because you can do it quickly for lots of people get answers right away. We need to have many, many, many more of those tests. We are probably going to have to test somewhere between like thirty million people a week in order to have a country that is functioning uh, at any scale of what's going on. The other test is the PCR test. That's the I called it an eyeball biopsy from the inside. If that feel appropriate. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. okay. 
So that's the that's the gold standard test. That test can take the actual test takes about four hours, okay? But the processing can take 14 days. What happens mm -hmm. is the swab has to go to a, a central lab, lab corn quest, the two largest ones, and then those are then um, processed. And a lot of these commercial urgent care centers like CityMD are third-party vendors. So they basically swab you, they send it to the lab, and then it takes whatever turnaround. The uh, issue around turnaround is entirely, it's exactly what you're talking about. So in a world where tests take 14 days to come back, they're irrelevant, right? The only thing they do is tell you if you were sick when you cared, and they're very, they, they are not good for screening. They are useless for schools. Um, they don't really do anything. Mm -hmm. except for tell you if you were sick, that you were sick enough so that you can tell people you're sick. I mean, congratulations. Um, the thing is, right now, uh, as testing gets scaled more and more, we are seeing the turnaround um, decrease. The problem is a lot of people have shown that some of the decrease in turnarounds, meaning that it's happening faster, has to do with the decrease in testing because uh, in certain cities, people are get, getting tested less. And um, we now see that reflected in the new CDC guidelines, which are uh, which came out yesterday saying That's that right. lots of people didn't need to be tested if they were exposed. What we need is a world where people are surveilled constantly to know where the asymptomatic carriers are. One of the and, good examples of that. What, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, no, so on. one of the good examples of that is there's a CDC. So the CDC simultaneously said test less people who are asymptomatic. And by the way, look, there are these four sleepaway camps in Maine that were able to open and stay open. Congratulations to them. Look how great they were. Well, how did these camps open and stay open? They screened everybody going to the camp before they started. They pulled out the 10 people, whatever it was, that had the coronavirus. They then screened them again two weeks later. Um, and found out that nobody had the virus and, you know, they were good to go in their bubble for the month. The reason why that's so ironically frustrating is they are, um, they're undermining the ability to do that. So all of those parents did what your sister did, right? All those parents paid $150 to get their kids screened so that they could go to camp because the federal government hasn't made it possible to do that level of screening to get our kids to school or work or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So you are totally correct that if we don't get the testing turnaround time to a way that is appropriate, but more importantly, if we don't asymptomatically screen enough people on a regular basis, what will happen is a month into school's opening, no matter what city you're in, no matter how high your viral load is, everybody's going to shut down because you're going to have classes disbanded for one exposure, one symptom with no turnaround time that's reasonable. And the education of our kids is going to suffer for a chaotic learning environment and everybody, parents, teachers, administrators are all going to say, forget this. Let's go remote until we solve this because this is not working for us. Hmm. I can already tell that there will be problems with um, the hybrid learning. I, I, we're all at home, so I can hear my mom's Zoom meetings when she's with administration and stuff. Oh. And I, can't, I can't really speak too much because, you know, um, concerns and stuff, but I got confused listening to how they're going to do their hybrid learning. Mm. Um, I remember that hybrid learning has nothing to do with education and all has only has to do with density of children in the classroom. Right. No, I understand that. So I, my mom explained it and you know, the union guidelines and everything else, but the way that um, the her specific school set it up was like a rotational days, like twice a week they come in and then other days they don't. So they picked one of the plans that, um, the DOE uh, released, but there were so many 
um, holes in the plan. There were so many questions that the teachers and the administration were bringing up during the Zoom meeting, and there weren't any clear solutions or there weren't any um, clear solutions regarding their concerns, not even just their questions about how things are going to run, but their concerns regarding what will happen if a kid gets tested positive. Or um, one of the questions that one of them did bring up is like, if we're waiting 14 days and the kid was in class, like what, four out of those like 14 days, what happens then? How do we how do we deal with the worst case scenario and stuff like that? So when all those administration and teachers were bringing it up, they were they weren't that many answers. So that's something that we're going to have to deal with this um, school year as well. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I hope that things pan out. I hope that we don't have to go back to remote learning because seeing my mother scramble to readjust the whole curriculum and work twice as hard, really. She's like, I'd rather drive from where I am in Queens all the way down to Brooklyn and go teach in the classroom than do this remote learning because it's very different and very difficult to accommodate and make sure that every 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 student gets the education that the most education they can get out of it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I hope that everything works well (laughs) this year, but I'm not too hopeful. And I think the teachers are scared. I think the other part that we need to really recognize is that administrators and teachers are petrified of the uncertainty of the um, of the risk they're being put into. You know, we forget. And it, it, look, New York City got hit like a tidal wave. OK, so what we dealt with here is like was unlike anything else in the country. And I will still hold that our response and our reaction was 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 better than anyone else could have done and it was about our citizens and it was about how we came together as a community so i i I will stand up on tv every network and talk about this however 100 administrators and teachers in the new york city school system died because they were exposed before because the schools didn't close early enough and that had to do with the fact that our school system is also a safety net for our children's uh, food services for their mental health for their support services and we didn't know how to to solve that problem so we kept schools open and our teachers suffered. Okay. So they are afraid to go back. And I get that. But the reality we're living in now is not the reality we lived in then. What we know about this virus now um, is very, very different. So I, I do think that we can go back safely, but I, I know teachers are scared. And look, we were scared. Um, I, I don't mean to say teachers are not doctors and doctors are not teachers. Uh, but we have had We've learned a lot in the past six months, and I think that we're in a better place for it as a country. And I, I know I wouldn't ask a single teacher to go back to a work environment that I wouldn't go into myself. And I think mm. they can go to work and they can feel good if they're wearing a mask, if their kids listen to them, if they have the autonomy and authority to take care of their classroom and to draw the line when they feel unsafe, I think we're going to be okay. I hope yeah, that I they can have that autonomy. Um, I know, that, like I that, said. That's, one of, that's one of the concerns yeah. that um, teachers have, especially is um, having the ability to be like, I don't think that this is working for my particular classroom. What can right. we do to change it? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of concerns because, yeah, some of my mom's coworkers did die from COVID. Wow. One mm-hmm. of the seniors in her school died from COVID. So an 18-year-old. Um, so it's it, it was very frustrating and very um, scary to see how a lot of teachers back in March were like, no, we need to close schools. We need to figure mm-hmm. it out, but we also need to close schools and not have their voices heard till later after like you heard, I've read um, news articles of like principals dying, assistant principals, or like someone from my sister's high school also died. So of uh, one of her former teachers. So wow. it, 
having dealt with that in March definitely brings a lot of concerns to everyone in the school system because they already, they weren't heard the first time until it was like the numbers really went skyrocketing high, like really high. And now what happens if we do get, I hope we don't, but what happens if we do become like California? Because at first California seemed to come like a New York City, you know, they mm-hmm. were, their case number was going down and then people started going out too early. And now look, they're right back where they were back in March and April. So yeah, but that, that, but, that has yeah. to do with there's there are reasons why that has to do no, with no, the yeah. Yeah. Californians. And yeah, how they no, I, I, know. <laughs> I, I know, I know, um, I know that. New but Yorkers the, the are not is, those kind of people. I will hold up a New Yorker every single day to a Californian, and I have a lot of really good friends in California, but there's an identity that New Yorkers have and a community we have for each other that has gotten us through this pandemic. And I will say, again, last thing is that uh, our governor has been really good at tapping into that identity. That identity. Uh, you know, when he when he has his press conferences and talks a lot about the way that New Yorkers take care of each other and live together New and York do what tough. we do, yep. I, I, it worked. Right? It goes to the power it of works. messaging and culture and community. Um, and that's what's been broken in this entire pandemic is the messaging is there isn't any messaging federally. There isn't any culture and community federally. And so we're not taking care of each other as a country. So we're leaning into our cities and that's where we are. Yeah. And, no, and again, definitely did a good job with that. No, absolutely. I'm not a Cuomo fan, by the way. Um, not that that's the opinion of health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen, but that is Maurice Donald. <laughs> you don't have to be a fan of Cuomo writ large, <laughs> but, be a fan of the fact that he had effective leadership in this exactly. moment. Exactly. That's what, that's what I would say. 1000% right. um, for the moment, he was the best person that we had in the country. Um, and really uh, just to, to uh, reiterate what Dr. Cass said is that we are in a very, very different place um, uh, in our, not only in the, the rates of infection, um, but also in just our understanding of this disease. Um, and so, you know, when we weigh those those risks of opening schools uh, again, um, you know, I think we are in a much better place where we can really go about doing so. And again, it's about being supported um, at those larger levels. And so prioritizing, I mean, I don't know if we'll get a hold of that, those 150 million uh, rapid tests, probably not, um, but prioritizing testing in the schools um, and really just parents being, you know, especially uh, in New York, I know that uh, parents are already um, on this vein, but really we make the case for everywhere in the country, mask wearing, teaching your children about social distancing. Um, my daughter's four years old and she understands. She actually went to uh, a neighbor's dog the other day and said, oh, can I air pet your dog? Because she understands the time that we're living in. And she's four years old wears her masks and asks for her mask as we go out um, into public. So if she can do that and understand these messages um, at four years of age, then I think we can definitely say that, uh, you know, the rest of uh, our society can definitely understand that. And we really just have to, to come together. I agree 1000%. Um, lastly, I know we thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cass, for your time. What would you say is the most important thing? If anybody was to take away any message from uh, this this program, what would you say that message is? That this isn't over. It's not even close to over. And the only way that it's going to, I mean, we're going to continue to move forward, hopefully, but the, we have the answers in front of us, right? Yeah. It's taking care of our community. It's mask wearing. It's staying socially distanced from people you don't know. And it's recognizing the risks that are around us reasonably while moving our kids forward to school. And so I guess the message I want to take people home is don't be paralyzed by fear, Right. Um, 
take control of the things you can get involved in something that gives you purpose. Um, because we're about to go into the winter. It's been the summer. It's been sunny out and it's been able mm. to go outside as people are forced inside again by the weather. Um, we need them to feel connected to solutions. Um, because, and, and that means, you know, take care of your kids, take care of your parents, take care of your community. Um, and we're going to get through this together. I've been overwhelmed by the love and support of the community in New York and, and, and really what's happening around the country. And I think that we need to continue to, um, to do that. All right. Especially for the small businesses out there in restaurants, when winter comes, there's no more outdoor seating. So you have to prepare for those types of things, mm. what you're going to do afterwards, because how is your business going to survive at that point? Right. For real, for real. And, and it's, it's going to be a reckoning, but we have to be there for our community. I mean, if you want stores in your community to stay open, you need to, you know, go there now and then or, help them when they announce they're only doing delivery. You need to order from them if you can. If you are fortunate enough to have enough money to pay for food from a local restaurant, there's nothing wrong with ordering. Okay. Word. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Cass, for joining us. And you are more than welcome uh, to join again. Yeah, we definitely have some uh, some more topics that we could definitely use your expertise. My pleasure. Um, also, Ashley and Anastasia, family of Health in Harlem, uh, thank you both as well. And ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, we thank you for tuning in. And the only thing that we ask of you is that you just share whatever you learned on this program with anyone that will listen. Ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas, Harlem. Take care of yourself.